I'm here to tell you that God told me to tell you this evening that today He's going to bless you. That today is the day that you're going to prosper. If you didn't notice yet, the windows of heaven is literally open right now. God giving His showers of blessing to us this evening. Maybe you have been praying for, for a new business. God is saying He's going to do it. Maybe you're praying for a promotion. Actually, tomorrow, when you come in at work, your boss is going to come to you and hand over your letter. You are promoted. Or maybe it's a new car, letter seats, disco lights inside, home theater inside. You're going to get it. Or maybe a five-room, bigger villa. We're going to get it only if you believe, only if you declare and confess and claim it, claim this promise, because I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope only if you claim this, if you confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart. I'm going to stop there. I can see the big Pastor Samuel in the back looking at me very intently, ready to bounce me off, off the stage. So I'm going to stop there. Because God never told me those. God never told me those. And today we would really do well if we pay attention to God's word and on his word alone. If this is the first time that we are meeting, my name is Alan Mandap, and I serve as pastoral assistant for Redeemer Church of Dubai. We are thankful for Fellowship Church, who, has, uh, who is hosting us this evening and really lends us uh, their equipment. So we are grateful, Fellowship Church, for your partnership with us in the gospel. Let us pray as we dive into our text today. Father, we praise you. We are thankful that we can gather here today. And I pray that this evening you will be glorified. We pray that your church will be edified. And those who are not yet part of your covenant, I pray that today is the day that they will believe you. I pray that give us open hearts to receive your word. I pray that we would have open ears to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this problem of false preachers, it's everywhere. They will promise you all these things only if you believe. But this is not new in our day. This is the same problem or at least one of the problems that Jeremiah is addressing 2,000 and a half years ago. Let me read a couple of passages. Jeremiah 23, sorry, Jeremiah 2 verse 11. 
has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which do not profit. In short, God is saying, my people have committed idolatry. They're worshiping idols. And that's against the first commandment. You shall love the Lord, your God, shall not worship any other gods before the Lord. How about in verse, how about in chapter 3, verse 1? If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and become another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played a whore with many lovers, and would you return to me? Declares the Lord. So here we see God pictured as Israel's husband and Israel his wife. And God is saying, my bride is committing adultery. And like I said, false prophets are not new. In Jeremiah um, chapter 23, verse 3, sorry. First, let's look at our passage today. Let us read our passage in Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. We've heard this a million times, especially if you have been a Christian for a while, especially that verse 11. And it's no surprise if you are like me, at some point you have thought or interpreted this passage to mean material or physical prosperity. It's not surprising because even the NIV or the New International Version of the Bible translates the word welfare that we saw in ESV into prosper. But actually, if we go back to the Hebrew word, that welfare or prosper is actually shalom. And shalom means peace, completeness, or welfare. So even from that word, we are already getting a hint that this passage is not about material prosperity. If you have listened to some of my sermons, you would have known by now that I like to dig a little deeper in the context on the, the, in, on the text that I'm preaching. And today, this evening is not gonna be different, but maybe more, but it's gonna be essential for us to go through all of that so that we could understand the passage that we are looking at today. So, 
Let us first zoom out from Jeremiah chapter 29 and look at the big picture of Jeremiah. So we will look at the structure of this book. So in chapter 1, we would see there the prophet's calling. So meaning God called Jeremiah to be his messenger, to be his prophet, to deliver a message from God. So if there's a prophet, there's a message, we will see that in section 2 from verses, sorry, from chapters 2 through 28. And the message is accusation of sins and warning against judgment. And in the third section, we're going to see God's hope for the people of Israel, or hope for God's people. That is from chapters 29 through chapter 23. And then in the fourth section, we're going to see more warnings, more warnings against judgment. And in this, in this section, we will also see the fall of Jerusalem. Now, in the fifth section, chapters 46 through 51, that's going to be about judgment against the nations, not only for Babylon, but all the nations surrounding Israel. And in chapter 52, or our sixth section, the last chapter of the book, we will see a recollection of the fall of Jerusalem and then a surprising hope for a Davidic king. So that's our bigger context. That's the whole book of Jeremiah. Now let's look at our passage. Let's look at chapter 29. Let's see if we're, we can get something from this. How about let's look at chapter 29, verse 14, especially in the last part. It reads, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to exile. So we're already getting something there. How about in verse 10? Just one verse on top of our passage today. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. How about we zoom out a bit further and let's look at the first verse of this chapter. It reads, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So from there, we're already seeing the context of this passage. They are in exile. And chapter 29 is actually a letter to the exiles. So that's where we're coming from. And we're already seeing that this is not about material prosperity. This is about a God who keeps his promises to his people. And that's our main point today. It's God's promise shalom in and out of exile so god's promise shalom in and out of exile meaning god's peace god's promised peace in and out of exile in other words god is saying yes i know you are in exile but you can still live in hope 
because I'm still the same promise-keeping God. Now, we can look at this passage in many ways or different ways, but here's how I see this passage. He is one way of seeing the structure of this passage. So I see this as a, as a chiasm. So first and last point has the same idea, and then the second and the second to the last point has the same idea, and they're trying to emphasize one point in the center. Let me explain uh, by helping us a visual. So first, we can see promised restoration. That is in verses 10 through 11. And then the second is promised restoration, which is the same with the first one. Uh, we see that in verse 14. And then lowercase a, we will see the message, I will bring you back. That's in verse 10. And then second to the last point, lowercase b, I will bring you back. That's in verse 14. And what this is trying to emphasize is how is God gonna, do, gonna promise this restoration? How is, gonna, how is God gonna do this restoration? And that is in our third point, through promise transformation. That is in verse 12 through 13. So now, we know the big picture. We know they are in exile in Jeremiah 29. But we need to ask the question, why are they in exile? If we look at the big picture again, the, the structure of the book, we're, we're all somehow already getting the idea, right? Our passage is, uh, is, can, can be seen in the center. That's the hope for God's people. But you could also see that it's sandwiched between accusations of sin and judgment. So we're already getting an idea. In short, Israel broke covenant with God, and they refuses to repent. Let me read a few passages from Jeremiah chapter 2. I, I know I read this earlier, but this is the time that we'll read it. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In short, God is saying, you have committed idolatry. You have broken the first covenant. You shall not worship other gods before me. How about in chapter 3, verse 1, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, Will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. Would you return to me? Declares the Lord. So God is saying, God is picturing himself as a husband and his people as his wife. And God is saying, my people have committed adultery against me. How about in chapter 23, verse, sorry, chapter 25, verse 3, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. So this is Jeremiah. And I have spoken persistently to you, but, but, 
you have not listened. I am tempted to preach now for 23 years, but I know you want to go home, so we'll skip that. We'll try that next time. But if you're here, I plead with you. I urge you to pay attention to God's word. Don't be like this, guys. They have not listened to the Lord. How about we go down a few verses after this in verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, for, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, in an everlasting desolation. I'm going to jump to verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So God is saying, I've given you my law. You broke it. If you continue breaking it, you're going to be in exile. And this should not surprise us Mike Mathis read to us from Deuteronomy 4 earlier, and it's the same message. It's the same message. We don't have time for now, but if we go to Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, that chapters, those chapters talks about God saying, if you're going to obey, these are the lists of blessings that I'm going to give you. However, if you're going to disobey me, these are the curses upon curses upon curses upon curses that you're going to get. And exile is on top of those. We get the point. Israel sinned grievously. They abandoned the Lord. They broke covenant with the Lord. And by breaking his covenant, exile is coming. Sadly, and of course, this prophecy came true. I'm going to mention a couple of dates. You don't need to really pay attention in them, but I want you to give, I want you to have a bigger picture of what's happening here. There's, there are three waves of exile. First happened in 605 BC. So in, during that exile, the prophet Daniel, if you know Daniel, he was included in those uh, exile. They were exiled in Babylon. And then in 597 BC, that's the second wave of exile. And the prophet Ezekiel is actually part of those. And if you remember in Jeremiah 29 verse 1, we see that this passage, this chapter is a letter. And this is a letter address more specifically and more immediately to that second wave of exile. And in 586 BC, Jerusalem fell. The temple was burned down. And they were sent to Babylon. Only the poorest of the land were left. So, that's where we're coming from, that's the previous chapters from Jeremiah. And now, finally, 
We are in chapter 29. We're going to make it through the night. We're now in chapter 29, but since we know that chapter 29 is a letter, let me give some of the messages in that letter. Let me read verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In short, be fruitful and multiply. We've heard that before, right? We've heard that way back from Genesis when God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. How about in verse 7? But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, or for in its shalom you will find your shalom. In other words, be a blessing to this nation. I remember Abraham when God promised Abraham, God said, I'm going to give you an offspring who is going to be a blessing to all nations. We also remember Jesus saying, pray for your enemies. But isn't that strange? If you're with this people, isn't that strange? Wait, Lord, we are behind enemy lines. We are exiled. We are not in our land, a land of flowing with milk and honey. And you want us to live like we are in Israel? You want us to live like we were in the promised land, like built houses? have sons and daughters, multiply, even pray for this nation? Isn't that strange? That's going to be a valid question. Why is that? Because God is saying this exile is not the end. It's not yet over. I am still the promise-keeping God. And I'm going to restore you. That's what we're going to see in verses 10 through 11. That's our first promise, promised restoration. Let us read verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So let's look at it again. So God is saying, I know you're in exile, and you're going to be there for 70 years. You're going to be exiled in that land for 70 years. But I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. What is this promise? I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you back to this land. Let's look at verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or plans for shalom and not for evil to give you a future and hope. So, yes, you are in exile. I know you're going to be there for a while, but I have plans for you. In fact, I'm not even surprised that you are in exile I'm not just reacting here. I know you're in exile. I know 
I knew that you're going to be in exile. In fact, I planned your exile. That's part of my plan. We serve a sovereign, providential God. Of course, he knows. He planned everything. But God is saying, don't worry. My plan, my plans for you is shalom. My plans for you is peace. My plans for you is not evil. And again, if you are part of the exile, you must be wondering, what is this? What is God saying? How can God promise peace? How can God promise this? How can he say it's not for evil when we are living here, not in the promised land? How is this not evil? We are behind enemy lines. And look, look further. God said, and I will give you a future and a hope. In short, a hopeful future. Well, that's promising. Except until you realize that 70 years is a pretty long time. Not many of us go beyond 70. And maybe even some of them are in already, already in their 20s or 30s or 40s. So that means after 70 years, they're going to be 100. Or that means they're going to be dead after these 70 years. So how can God promise shalom? How can God promise peace? How how can this be not an evil thing? How can they have a future and a hope? Well, the answer is found in the verses that we read previously. That's why God is saying, be fruitful and multiply. Pray for that nation. Because in you, there's going to be a remnant that's going to come out from this place. Your sons and daughters will come out will return to the promised land. There's going to be a new exodus, and that is their hope. Now, let's look at, I'm going to jump to verse 14. And like we said, since it's a chiasm, so it's the same point, it's the same idea, which is promise restoration. Let's read verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So God is saying, I'm going to restore all your fortunes, all that you have lost. I'm going to restore that, and I'm going to gather you from all nations, not only from Babylon. Many of them are in Babylon, but some of them were scattered throughout the nations. And God is saying, I'm going to pull you back, and you're going to return this promised land. So there's not much really information here. It's the same idea from our first point from verses 10 to 11. And last year, Pastor Morgs walked us through the book of Zechariah. And in the book of Zechariah, we saw that there's actually a remnant that came back to the promised land. They built, rebuilt the temple. There was opposition, yes, but they rebuilt the temple and it was a happy day. It was a worship service. They praised God, glorified God. Although some of them were not happy because it's not as grandeur 
compared to the Solomonic temple, but still, they were able to return. But the problem, these people still lived in sin. They still lived in rebellion against God. They're still covenant breakers. So, that return is actually not what God is talking about or ultimately talking about. So how is God going to bring this restoration? The answer is in verse 12 through 13. He's going to bring this restoration through transformation. There's going to be transformation. Let's read verse 12. Then, hear this, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So God is saying, you will call me, you will pray to me, you're going to come to me and you're going to seek me. What's God's response? I will hear you. I will be found by you. And Redeemer, this is the God that we serve. We serve a God who sees, who hears, who listens, who speaks. That's why we have this word. We serve a God who exists. That's why we can find him. Isn't it such a stark contrast to the idols that the people of Israel are worshiping? Dead idols who cannot see, who cannot hear, who cannot speak, who does not even exist. Dead idols. But we serve a living God. And if you're here, you're coming from a different background, maybe you're, uh, and to some degree, you're serving idols, worshiping idols, I'm personally glad that you're sitting here today. This is God's way of drawing you to him. This is God's way of telling you, leave your allegiance to your dead God. Your God does not see, your God does not hear, your God does not speak. God doesn't even exist. It's a dead God. And God is inviting you right now to plead your allegiance to the living God, the God of the Scripture. Pray that you would heed that. So, if we continue in verse 13, if we can show the verse 13 again, in the last part, we see... It said, when you seek me with all your heart. That sounds nice. Except we can't do that on our own. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 is very clear. The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is desperately sick. So how can the people of Israel 
search for God or seek God if their hearts are continually evil? How can we even do that? There needs to be a heart surgery. Moses in Deuteronomy 10 talks about the circumcision of the heart. In short, the heart needs to be transformed so that it's able to seek God completely. Now, I remember more than a decade ago when my wife are uh, still dating or even in our earlier years of marriage, we used to love hiking. Uh, we hike mountains, we trek mountains, we trek for hours and hours and hours uh, just for us to see the mountaintop and camp there for the night and just really enjoy this uh, grandeur of creation. So at some point, there's this place where you can almost see the peak, you can almost see the mountaintop or the summit, but you're not on the summit yet, all right? And you know, you're all grasping for air, so tired, exhausted, and that's mostly true of me only, not for my wife. You know, we're, we're carrying this big backpack for the night, and, but then you turn around, you turn around, you see this 180 degree of vast, you know, it could be ocean, or lost, lush forest trees, or even the small villages um, down the mountain. And there's a temptation to stay there, you know, not, okay, I'm not gonna go to the peak, this is good enough for me. And can I make a confession? Actually, we, we hike Mount Pulag, it's the second highest peak in the Philippines. I never get to summit. Never get to summit. I was so tired, exhausted, and feeling cold, and I said, you know, I'm good with this. I can see sea of clouds, and I'm good for that. And I see Jeremiah 29 as that, the place where you can see almost a mountaintop, but it's not a mountaintop. It's not peak. There are good things to see there, you know, sea of clouds. We're tempted to stay, but you have to go to the summit. That's the only way you can have a 360-degree view of the city. And if Jeremiah 29 is that place before the mountaintop, the summit is Jeremiah 31, especially verses 31 through 34. And there, we're going to find the answer to our question, how can we seek God with our whole hearts if our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things? So we would do really well if we go to that chapter. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to read verse 31 first. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Let's digest it a little bit. So God is saying, yes, you are in exile. You're going to be there for 70 years. But the day is coming. I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Let me make a side note for this. It says, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's actually strange because by this time, the northern kingdom, which is Israel, almost doesn't exist by this time. They were exiled to uh, Assyria, 
So we don't know where they are right now, but the Judah, the kingdom of Judah, or the southern kingdom still exists. But here God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with both the house of Israel and Judah. So that's already saying something. Now, what kind of covenant? Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Okay, what is this covenant he's talking about? So new covenant, that means there's an old covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So now we're seeing what is God talking about. So that's the covenant given to Moses. So they were, uh, they were slave. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. Then Moses led them out. So that's the Exodus. And then God made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. So God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. Not like that. Why? Is it because the covenant, the old covenant is imperfect? No. It's because you broke it. They broke it. So I'm going to make a new one. And God said, though I was their husband, they broke covenant with me. They committed adultery with me. Not much different from us. We are covenant breakers, just like these people. But verse 33, look at this. And here, we're actually going to find our answer. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. What does it mean? And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So God is saying, I made a covenant with you. I'm your husband. You're my wife. You broke it, but I'm going to give you a new covenant. I will write my law into your hearts so that you're going to be able to obey me and follow me and love me. Ezekiel talks about this a little bit in a different illustration or a different way. He said, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. That's our hearts. I'm going to remove your heart of stones and give you a heart of flesh. That heart can delight and obey God. And this promise, the same keeping, the same promise keeping God several hundred years after this became incarnate, born of a virgin in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, perfectly God and human. 
In his lifetime, he lived a perfect life, obeyed all the law of God, fulfilled all God's law, all of God's law on our behalf. Because we could not obey it. And on the night that he was betrayed, on the night before his crucifixion, he took the bread, broke it, and said to his disciples, this is my body that is given to you. And then took the cup and said, take this, drink this. This is my blood in the new covenant, which is given to many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus lived this perfect life so that he could lead a people to a new exodus, not for the oppression of nations, but, for, but from the oppression of sin. That's what we need. That's what we need. And after that evening, on the next day, Jesus went to the cross, was crucified, not because he's a sinner, not because he broke the covenant, but because we broke the covenant. We are sinners, rebellious, idolaters, adulterers. So he took the punishment that we deserve as covenant breakers went to the cross, nailed it all. And when all hope seems lost, on the third day, he rose in victory, declaring to sin and death, no more. You are defeated. That new covenant has begun. At the same time, it is finished and it has begun. This is now the new covenant. And friends, Christians, friends, we are part of this covenant. Look what God has done throughout the history of mankind for us to be redeemed, for us to be partakers of this new covenant. Let us marvel and stand in all of this. Let us celebrate this. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, he sends the Spirit. And through the Spirit, our hearts are transformed. Our hearts are redeemed. And now we can all together say, you are our God and we are your people. This is it. This is God's promised shalom. Now together with the people of Israel, we are grafted in. We Gentiles are grafted in that. And together we can say you are our God and we are your people. Hebrews chapters 7 through 10 talks about Jesus and it says, Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant. He's also the mediator of the new covenant, 
He's the high priest of this new covenant, and he's also the sacrifice for this new covenant. As if you're sitting here, you're not yet part of this new covenant. Would you receive this invite from the scriptures to be part of this new covenant? Leave your dead idols. They won't be able to save you. Plead your allegiance to the God who is a promise keeper, a covenant keeper. Despite our law, despite our sins and covenant breaking, God offers us this new covenant. So the people of Israel has better hope, better promises, much more to we as Christians who have been redeemed, who have been transformed, who have been saved by Jesus. Now we stand on better eternal promises, not for new promotion or new car or new house, not wealth or healing. Yes, of course, God can give all of those, but those are just tiny little bit of blessing. They're nothing in comparison to this eternal covenant of the Lord. Let us rejoice in this Redeemer. And even if you are a kid or a twin or a youth, you can be part of this new covenant. I know maybe you've heard this many times at home, but my prayer for you, that this will be the day that you on your seat will receive this new covenant. For those who do not want to be part of this, judgment is coming. For those who are part of this new covenant, I know my plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of shalom. Not for evil, but plans of peace. We were enemies of God. We were covenant breakers. God is saying, you have now shalom with God. You have peace with God. And God's promise is to give you a future and a hope. And that is eternal future and eternal hope. Let us pray. Father, what a marvelous thing that we discover from your word. Thank you that you have planned for our shalom. Thank you that you have planned not for evil. Thank you that you have planned for hope in a future for us. Father, I pray that as Christians, we would celebrate this and marvel at this truth. And God, I plead with you right now, please, those who are outside of this covenant, would you bring them in? Would you bring them in? Would you save them? God, our hope is in you. Father, we cannot wait for that day 
that we believers could feast together, could sing together and worship together from all tribes and all nations. And we will declare, you are our God and we are your people. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.